Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. We're having these conversations in the time of the coronavirus pandemic, and that's changed the nature of this conversation. And we've been trying to reach out to experts in different communities in America who have experienced this in different ways. I feel really privileged today to have with us Chef John Brand, who's been a Share Our Strength No Get Hungry activist for some time, and Eric Cooper from the San Antonio Food Bank, president and CEO for, I'm going to say, the past 15 years. Eric, welcome to both of you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. A number of reasons why we were eager to have this conversation, and I'm here with my sister, Debbie Shore, as well, who's pointing to herself so that I don't forget her. It's been so long. We haven't been together in five months, so he's forgot to introduce me, but uh, I'm here too. Hi, guys. We Hello, Debbie. Many of these podcasts together, and we just got back together after five months of being separated by COVID. Debbie's visiting our family for a couple of days. But the reason we were eager to have this conversation is, and you know this better than I do, I feel like back uh, in the early days of the pandemic, going back to maybe April, there was a photograph of cars at the San Antonio Food Bank that really became kind of the iconic image of the intersection of this pandemic and hunger in America. I think there was a day that was reported, Eric, where you had 10,000 families lined up for food and that image of the cars and one row after another bunched together, from my point of view, changed the way Americans thought about hunger in America at this moment. Like many organizations, I'm sure yours certainly ours, we received this unbelievable flood of uh, interest and support as Americans woke up to the notion that so many of their fellow citizens lived on the margins, couldn't uh, absorb the shock of uh, not having a job or not having the resources. And it's the image that's been imprinted on many people's minds. I'd love to just start there. And Eric, have you talk about that day, what that felt like? Yeah, Billy, Debbie, I think you you said it well in that uh, we know families are struggling across America and, and just barely making it. But the COVID-19 crisis really pushed so many families over that edge. And what wasn't as maybe visible to most of us became very visible that day. And I think it is just a stark reminder of the need that we all work to, to remedy. You know, we thought we were being smart launching an early effort in February to do some prevention and preparedness work for our seniors, really stocking them up with, with food, thinking that we might not be able to get to them if, if the virus did break out and really wanted to educate them about, you know, prevention work and, and hygiene and make sure that they had hand sanitizer, et cetera. But it was for us in Texas that spring break, that second week in March, that things just started to go crazy and uh, the schools closing and, and, and the ramp down created a downward spiral. I mean, I think for our incredible river walk economy uh, built on incredible hospitality and great food and, and culture and tradition, uh, those conventions that typically would come here, it just stopped and paychecks for many families ran out. And it was April the 9th when we saw this uptick in all of our distributions and knowing that our city was hurting. You know, we did an outreach to about 6,000 families, but got back 
you know, this demand for 10,000. And I was out there that morning getting ready for the distribution, saw the cars lining up, but I really couldn't imagine what that was going to be like until I I pulled out of Trader's Village, which is a Texas swap meet facility that uh, was closed. And so they let us use their parking lot. And I went to go deliver some homebound deliveries with a group of volunteers. And as I left the Trader's Village parking lot and got out onto the freeway, it was then that I saw the line and I just panicked. I mean, I- What was going through your mind, Eric? Well- I thought we were going to run out of food. I mean, we we sent about 25 semi truckloads of food to to meet the need of the 6,000. And so I, I I called our warehouse and dispatched more trucks of food. You know, we engineer that process of distributing food cuz you know, you you just don't want people waiting that long. Although the the scarcity mentality and the desperateness of these families, many of them show up the day before and sleep in their cars waiting to be uh, towards the front of the line. And I just, uh, I knew that we would be there longer. I knew that it was going to take all day to, to meet that need. And uh, we would need more volunteers. We would need more food. And we we, we brought it. Um, I mean, I think every car, every family received food. And I waited until the last car was served and loaded up. And to be honest with you, Billy, I went to apologize. I thought, you know, hey, I'm so sorry it took so long. But I was greeted with this resiliency and and gratitude that was amazing they just said no no thank you for being here for us you know our employer let us go and disappointed us but you didn't you didn't disappoint us thank you for the food and you know it's just humbling to see our city uh, our nation hurting in this environment and what a privilege it is to do a, a small part to provide some nourishment to these families. I would have been a puddle at that point. Well, it was, it was just, I mean, I met so many incredible families just on that day. And in the, the, the weeks and months that have followed that, you know, one, one family that just, just haunts me is a young family, a husband and wife, they were in their minivan at Trader's Village. The husband, again, I was apologizing. Sorry, it's, you know, a long line today. And, and, and he said, no, no, you know, it's all good. And he introduced me to his wife. He said, we met while we were working at the hotel downtown and we started dating, got married and bought a home and started our family. They had three beautiful children sitting in the back of the minivan. And he said he worked evenings while his wife worked days so that they could manage the childcare. And he said, I knew something was wrong when my boss called us both in at the same time. And he said he pulled everybody in and let us all know that we were being let go. And then I said, well, how are you doing? He said, well, we book home and we just talked about what we were going to do for health care, what we were going to do to feed our kids, how we would make the house payment, all of that kind of stuff. And and I just imagined myself in, in, in his shoes and what a desperate place. And But he, he with that resiliency, it was just like, we're going to be back. It's going to be okay. And, and we're just thankful that the food bank's here to provide food. And, you know, the, the work of, of many to make sure food's donated and funds and volunteers, you know, I just have a, a part in it. But it's, a, it's an incredible effort and it's not over yet. 
given just to build on that uh, before we turn to John, just thinking about how this crisis is, you know, and now it's what everyone's saying, but it's pulled the cover back on what hunger looks like in America, the numbers of families that were living on the edge to begin with that are now in, you know, real need. And I'm wondering, I'm imagining that you've, you know, acquired thousands of new donors, if not tens of thousands of new donors. And how do you, I, I would imagine too, that you're, you're putting some real effort or your team's putting real effort into thinking about the uh, sustainability of these donors, because as we know, hunger existed, you know, before this crisis, obviously it's worse now, but it existed in pretty large numbers before our focus, as you know, is mostly on kids, although we're doing a lot with families in this, but how do you think about how to keep these donors engaged? And do you think they'll stay engaged as I know the crisis will go on, but you know, as we move into the future with this issue? Yeah, Debbie, I tell you, a couple of things are going through my head and just the the sure volume in this unprecedented environment that, you know, we go through right now about $6 million worth of inventory a week. And our community gave big. And I just received a grant at the 1st of August for $7.2 million. And that funding is spent. I mean, it's gone. We've, we've ordered the food, the trucks will arrive, the food will go out. And I just don't think people understand what it takes to nourish America right now and the amount of dollars that it takes and how quickly, you know, it spends. And so as you talk about donors, I think that's the challenge is, is our community gave big and as Billy mentioned, that that photo went viral, and so we got support from from London to New York, all over. And it it just, but the support's now spent, and the need is still here. And how do you continue to inspire when there's so many other needs our nation's grappling with? John would love to kind of just get your take on what, what's happening in your restaurant and your community. You've been involved with Share Strength at least since 2017, if not earlier, through a number of events that we can touch on. But what is happening with you and the restaurant right now, and and how are you you faring in this crisis? Uh, we're, we're we're doing we're doing all right. You know, I can't say anybody's doing great, and I think hearing Eric's story is 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 fascinating. And, and I'm, I wish we could do more. I guess to, so this this didn't happen. It doesn't happen again. But what we 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 stayed open, obviously, and because you're in a hotel. Yeah, we were so technically we were essential, even though we. I mean, we did have guests too. I mean, there, there were there were definitely people staying here, very few, very minimal. And our, I guess our our, our mission, we didn't we didn't want everybody to, things to hurt so bad either. So we continued to, even though we didn't need everybody, we did, we did continue to keep everybody on the payroll until the end of May, and that helped get. I guess food food on everybody's table as well, whether they're working or not. And, and the folks that were working may weren't necessarily getting full time hours, but we were we were definitely providing an outlet and a resource. And like I said, we still have business. We one of our first things we did was we we fed all the first responders. So we we opened that up to and we every day we for for lunch seven days for a couple months we fed the local police department, park department, fire departments, uh, EMTs, pretty much everybody in uniform. And obviously that's you know, a bunch of detectives that weren't in uniform. Came through, so we provided to the community real quickly um, first responder meals. And slowly, as as restrictions eased a little bit, we adjusted accordingly and and stayed on point and and kind of been just consistent. Where 
financially, it may not have been the greatest uh, move, but we were we 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 were relevant in the community, and uh, we found ways to to adjust business and look at business a little differently. Our guests look at us a little differently. We have uh, an outstanding number of, of local support, but drive drive market travelers from Houston and Austin per se, looking for, looking for a getaway. So I'm, I'm really thankful that, that we were able to maintain our composure. There was obviously some challenges that no one could ever have done or foreseen that that we were able to uh, adjust with accordingly. And so I, I think it's it's interesting how it works. We've, you know, with just with the folks in the kitchen and, and different departments having to adjust just for the new school system and, and being very flexible during other things that the biggest biggest thing we've all learned is compassion, compassion for each other and, and understanding where there's even less of it outside of this building sometimes. And we're, we're real quick to forget that. We are fortunate to to be in a, in a very high touch industry. And, and because of that, we get to to have an awesome connection where a lot of the world is retreated. We are able to connect on a, on a really, to me, a deeper level, obviously serving with, with food and, and uh, providing providing a service. That, that's made a huge impact. And the, the study of the human condition has been fascinating. And, and there's some really, some really, really awesome people out there all over. Chef, how were you even able to afford to do what you were doing in terms of feeding the first responders and so forth? Was there a, a, a nonprofit middle man organization that enabled that to happen? No, no, no. We, uh, we obviously when it, when it happened, you know, we obviously had some, some stores of food, but that, you know, that went real quickly. We did a lot of, a lot of pickling and canning in, in the neighborhood as well. There was a, another local restaurant that opened up and con- converted its, its, its operation to a hospitality house that fed all hospitality workers. And they were for, for lunch and dinner, you can get a, get a meal or meals to go type situation. And we contributed a lot of food to that. And that, that chef really stood out in the community as far as helping out. And he had, a, he had a tons of support and served meals every day to, and, and we would deliver food and, and see some of our same associates, our same people in, in line getting food as well. So that, that, that really hit home, but it was also good to really help. And uh, some things that, you know, we thought we were going to have, uh, we didn't have, but we were able to, to distribute that food without, without it going away. So we, we just supported it on our own and we made it, we made it, let's say cost effective. We provide family meal for our team anyway, every day, three times a day. So to feed a few of the first responders, which are so important to us, it, it was more of a, it was a gift that, that we were able to do it. So it turned out really well. And we got to know some really great people out of it. One of the things that uh, Billy and I talk about all the time is we just can't get over the amount of continued hospitality from the restaurant industry that is hurting probably more than any other industry that I can think of. And they're just decimated, as you know, in so many different ways, you know, whether they're closed completely or, you know, just doing takeout or just doing outdoors or, you know, in, in any of those scenarios, they're really hurting. And I'm, I'm just, I'm just so amazed at restaurants at what you just described as finding ways to still get involved in the community. And I think John, I'm pretty sure you were, you came to an impact trip, yep. came on one of our impact trips to DC. Is that right? Yep. That yeah, was, that was, that was massively intentional. It was, it was amazing. So it, it and you, you visited some schools in Virginia. I wonder if you could just, if you can remember, you know, kind of what some of your key impressions were, because our experiences when we get, you know, our staff or our donors or our chef supporters into the schools to really see how No Kid Hungry works on the ground. And of course, now that schools are closed, where so many of them are closed, you know, we've had a pivot to reaching them in other ways. But can you remember kind of just what your first impressions were in the schools in Virginia that you visited? 
Yeah, I think, I think the first was that, that early morning, Monday morning down at, down at Fairfax, I believe, um, for school and distributing breakfast in the, in the classroom. And, and I think there was just a look of, look of hunger in the kids' eyes. And, and I think that that's still there today. But I remember not, not wanting to see that, you know, obviously in my own children, but not even wanting to see it with, with people I work with, uh, much less just a, a general school day on a Monday in, in, in Virginia. So and, and then obviously we, we spent the day there and then we, we went, we saw the afternoon distribution for the, for the meals after school in the classroom and for the kids who had to stay a little bit later. And, and again, that hunger is still there. Can, you know, kids eat a lot and they, and they need good food. And, and, and I was glad we were able to provide it and thankful that, that I'd gotten organized. We had, we had a few events here and I was partook in some other events. So I felt like it was impactful and, and I at least make a dent and try to make a difference. What will the San Antonio schools be doing now? Have they announced whether they're going to reopen or how? Uh, right now, it is, it's, they started on Monday as, as distance learning. So uh, for a couple of school districts, it is just at, at home, I guess, right now. You know, And then I believe in three weeks, nine weeks, they're going to reevaluate it and then decide to go back on campus or not. In the surrounding areas, there are some schools that have gone back to on-campus learning, some with the option of distance learning, but an overwhelming majority of, of some districts in the surrounding counties have gone back to campus. You can imagine the complexities for us as we're trying to sort out, you know, our key focus for the last 10 years has been to ensure that kids who are eligible for their school meals, breakfast and lunch are getting them. And now with the schools closed, we're trying to still take advantage of the opportunity that exists with federally subsidized meals. The, the, the food itself is 100% reimbursed the cost of the food 100% reimbursed by the federal government so it's the the most efficient and most effective way to feed kids in need but with the schools closed we've got to find all of these kind of alternative ways to do it and, and that brings me to a question for you Eric which is if we jump ahead from April to where we are today four months have gone by has the need tapered off has it stabilized are you seeing demand increasing or decreasing what kind of spikes have you seen if any as the federal assistance has expired and congress has been deadlocked just what's the i guess what's the current state of play yeah thanks billy you know just real quick here and john talk i mean i think that's what was so painful about this crisis is the hospitality industry they're like family to to our work and to see them hurting, you know, really motivated us at the food bank to really figure out like, how can we have distributions specifically for hospitality workers? And we, we partnered with a, a lot of our hotel lodging and restaurant associations to just, you know, create environments where individuals that maybe have never had to access food before could feel uh, the dignity and support and love from maybe another chef or, or their general manager, or whoever, was out volunteering to help. And we did some hotel lobbies where we deliver food and, and employees could come back to the workplace where, where they used to get a paycheck and, and now they're getting food instead. And so it's just been uh, humbling, um, heartbreaking, but we can't wait for you know the tourism to increase and visitors to come back and that opportunity to just be able to socialize. At the onset of the crisis, we went from feeding 60,000 people a week pre-COVID to 120,000 people a week in the COVID crisis. And that stayed pretty flat until 
this first part of August. I think the unsettling uncertainties of where the unemployment insurance will go. I think the PPP running out for many businesses and then the fact that kids wouldn't be going back to school and, and, and parents not getting that support created a little bit of an uptick in demand. Now, no, nothing that freaked us out, but it just, I think it said, hey, if Congress doesn't act soon, I think we could see a second wave of demand on food banks across the United States. It is a time to be innovative. And I know, Billy, you and Debbie, you've led this, this work around making sure no child goes hungry, right? And uh, it's time for, you know, some, some out-of-the-box thinking when it comes to those traditional programs, the National School Lunch Program, the Child Adult Care Feeding Program, and Summer Food. It was tough for us. We feed a lot of kids during the summer, but COVID creates an inability for those kids to congregate. So strategies like the Pandemic Electronic Benefit Transfer, PBT, can go a long way in helping those families nourish their kids where maybe a congregate meal isn't appropriate because kids aren't congregating. So I think we look forward to Congress maybe doing another round of PEBT as kids right now in Texas uh, are distant learning. And, and to be honest, they're, they're going hungry. Eric, I was looking at the website before we got on the call today and I was, you know, kind of just looking at the focus and the mission of the food bank. And, you know, was talking about how the, the main focus is to make sure, you know, your clients and families have food for today, but also have the resources to be self-sufficient in the future. And then I kind of just went deeper and looked at all the different kind of, you know, surrounding services that you provide. And I was, I was loving all of that because those are obviously anti-poverty, more anti-poverty efforts contributing to hunger. And I wondered if you could maybe talk about a couple of them. And if you think that some of these new ways of addressing poverty within a food bank is maybe this one-stop shop is like a, a, you know, the future of food banks, or if this is just happening in a few and, you know, how does all that good work spread across the food bank world? Yeah. Well, number one, Debbie, thank you for taking the time to look at our website. And, and I, I take it as a huge compliment that you, you might be smiling. So thank you. We, I, I think, you know, we never believed that we were going to solve hunger with a canned good, right? I think it's, it, it's that bigger issue. Hunger is a symptom of poverty. And I, I tend to think that, you know, people in poverty have lots of problems, lots of issues, lots of barriers. Someone that's hungry, they just have one barrier and that's just getting a meal. And you have to have this tandem approach. It can't be fish or teaching how to fish. It has to be, has to be both. She won't meet you at the, the dock, right? If you don't pack a tuna fish sandwich, it has to be holistic. And so our kind of today, tomorrow and a lifetime strategy is really trying to use the emergency food to meet the need today, but really then leveraging, you know, federal programs like the National School Lunch Program, like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP and WIC and, and access to healthcare, you know, Medicaid. And in Texas, we have the Children's Health Insurance Program. All of those can be great stability strategies for the household while then they learn how to fish, right? So workforce development, continued nutrition education, right? We all need, uh, John could teach us a lot in, in the right foods and the right amounts and how to prepare it in the healthiest way. But we all need to think about what we eat. And I think for us, the bigger picture of kind of food security, knowing where your food comes from, you know, domestic agriculture, protecting our land, being a good steward over resources, 
you know, combined with just smart public policy. I, I mean, ultimately in this COVID environment, I would love to get people out of those parking lots like at Trader's Village and into grocery stores. And the way you do that is with a living wage where employment is a challenge and wages aren't available. It's going to be a federal safety net like SNAP. And so boosting SNAP by 15% would be what Congress could do to help get people out of their hot car in in a Texas swap meet and into an air-conditioned grocery store where they can choose the nutritious items that their family would enjoy. And I think that stimulates the economy, that strengthens our community, and that's going to be our way back until that individual can go back to work and have a wage that can support themselves and their family. I couldn't agree with you more, Eric. But one of the questions I have for both of you, because you've both been at this for a while and you're thoughtful about it and compassionate about it. And I guess the question has to do with what we struggle with at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. A real-time issue for us is how do you build the political will to do what you're talking about? Because I guess the way I would shorthand it is nobody's against feeding a child, right? Everybody's in favor of feeding a hungry kid. After that, the, at least our experience has been the politics start to fray pretty quickly when you talk about living wage. And I agree with you on the importance of that. When you talk about some of these other supports, we've been trying to, in this moment, help people understand that one of the best things we can do for a hungry child is find ways to support and strengthen their family or their parents, their caregivers, whoever they're living with, because at the end of the day, they deserve to have the options so that they're not in line at a, at a food bank. But how do you all think about the ways to talk about that politically? And I'm sure you've experienced the same thing or can see what I mean. The, you know, the, the politics quickly change when you go from talking about kids to talking about some of these larger societal needs. Well, I'll jump in first. I mean, I, I, I think it is interesting, right? I've had the privilege of trying to help put a meal on the table for about 27 years in a couple of different states, several different food banks. And in the early 90s, when I started, you know, it was about helping people that were unemployed. But the last decade or so was about just helping people that are working make ends meet. I mean, earlier days, no one had jobs. You know, the last decade, everybody was working. They just weren't making enough. Now, COVID, there's a high unemployment again. And so I I think the political will around food is medicine and that, you know, we spend more in healthcare than, than any other nation. And there's a reason why that's the case. I, I believe nutrition is at the at the core of it. I mean, high rates of diabetes, heart disease, all of that could be remedied with good nutrition and access to food. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I'm tired of 27 years of kind of being a part of the benefit package of a low-wage employer. I mean, that's in essence what I do. And I, I think we've got to come to terms with what does it take to survive in America and and with high costs of housing and healthcare, it's tough. You know, John and I are seeing, I mean, in our community, we've, we've got big families, you know, kids that moms and dads will go off to work and, and without school being open, there, there's a lack of childcare. I mean, 
childcare ex- is expensive. And, and these families that are essential workers now are being caught, you know, what do I do with my kids if I go to work? And I mean, it's a, it's a big challenge, but I think this crisis has put it so front and center that I hope that the public will, will start to change, that, that, that we'll start to understand. I mean, our city debated uh, whether or not employees should be offered sick leave. And, and it's a challenge. I mean, I know for all businesses, we're making tough choices on how to stay afloat and what we can provide our employees. But imagine not having sick leave in COVID. That would just, it forces an employee to come to work no matter how they feel because they've got to pay their bills. And that's where the virus spreads. And I think we've learned the value of sick leave. Hopefully we've learned the value of healthcare. Hopefully then the value of making sure everyone in our community has their basic needs met. So John, you know, to ask you kind of the same question, but maybe through the lens of somebody who's been in schools, you talked about what you saw, what you felt when you saw kids getting school breakfast. Unfortunately, we can't get everybody into schools to have that experience. What can we be doing to help people understand some of these deeper needs? I, I mean, I like a lot, a lot of what, what Eric said, and, and to, to, to tail on to that too is, is the, the Cooking Matters program, I thought was massively impactful for me as far as, because I work in a, in a Disneyland type where I can create food and make food with food I can get, but to have the opportunity to go into a store and only be able to get certain things based on, on, on certain diets, because every, every child, every, every adult might require a different food at different times of their life. And to have that opportunity for more people to get nutrition, like, like Eric said, that the health of our country is, is so important. And I do get the privilege of serving and cooking for some of our, our local and, and national leaders that come into the restaurant. And I wish they would show up in the room per se, you know, differently than, than just sitting down to eat, but to help the local community a little bit more and expose them to opportunities with, uh, I, I'm going to go back to the cooking matters thing, just teach people yeah, how to cook right. And chef, for those who don't know what cooking matters is, give us a little bit of a description. It was an, ex- an experience we had where we had to um, almost like a, a, a little lesson in, in how to cook and how to shop for a budget and how to, how to make it work smart for for a family without say going over budget or but to meet all the needs that were required from a pretty well-stocked grocery store and and that that mental challenge or anguish of, of figuring out this puzzle that some of us in that group hadn't really been exposed to before but i i was it was i'd say it was fun it, it was very very enlightening i took the cooking matters thing um seriously and i think and and i wish i can could teach a little bit more and shed some more fulfillment or share some fulfillment um, so people to create their own better living condition or healthier living condition. Nutrition is such a huge part of our, of our world and our diet and, and doesn't get taken seriously enough sometimes. Really goes to the food as medicine point that Eric was making. Right. And like when he said, you know, he said that, you know, the, the benefits, yeah, we, we do provide medical benefits, but we shouldn't have to use them as much as we do for certain things. So just a general rethinking of our lifestyle and how to, how to cook and eat better and, and, sa- and save a few dollars as, as well. Imagine if your copay could cover your groceries, right? Oh, be fantastic. Um, you know, if we could prescribe produce and, you know, that daily dose, you know, rather than maybe moving from from farm to the other farm, you know, it's just, I think it's a matter of priorities. That's what we've got to get at is we've got to start to shift the priorities. The dollars are being invested. It's just invested in the wrong things. And John, I have a feeling you're, you may be familiar with Michelle Nishan, who's 
uh, runs Wholesome Wave. Yep. And that's, yeah. you know, really what that whole organization is about is just, you know, a clear and focused message around how food, you know, turns around health and how yeah. making sure and they, you know, we talk about food insecurity and they talk about nutrition insecurity and they, they do a great job in just trying to you know, make sure that people have access to affordable, healthy meals, which is a nice bookend to Cooking Matters, really, which, you know, provides the framework for nutrition, education, shopping, budgeting, preparing food on a, on a limited budget. I want to thank you both for giving us this kind of firsthand bearing witness to exactly what's going on in the San Antonio community. One of the things that I've been thinking about in this latter part of our conversation is a big focus we have for the next at least 75 days, I guess, at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign of helping people understand that there is a policy connection to these issues, not just a charitable response that's necessary, really to the, to the point that I think you've both been making and encouraging folks to get out and vote. Uh, we're a completely nonpartisan organization, but uh, nonprofit organizations are expressly permitted to encourage their stakeholders and those they serve to vote to change public policy. As we all know, tens of millions of Americans who are eligible to vote every year don't vote. And these elections are so important, both in terms of the White House, Congress, governors, state houses, mayors, school superintendents. This is where these policies get made and executed. So I use it as an opportunity to say I hope more of us in the anti-hunger community become cheerleaders for voting, because at the end of the day, I think that's how we scale up these, these really good ideas. Hey, Billy, it reminds me of when you and I were down in Crystal City, down in Zavala County, you know, visiting some schools and community centers. South Texas, our border communities, uh, we've, we've had this significant migrant issue. And, you know, Texas is rich in diversity and San Antonio culture. And, you know, we love our Tex-Mex and our Mexican food and, and we love the people. And I think in this environment of racial injustice and and inequity, you know, more diversity, you know, more inclusion, you know, more appreciation, you know, is is needed. And I and I think our opportunity is to vote for those that share and embrace uh, the diversity of America. And and our city is made great because of our diversity. Well, I can't say it better than that. And every time I come to Texas, it feels like a celebration of uh, food as well. And so to honor that, I hope folks take your advice. So grateful for the leadership of both of you in the community and the many, many lives that you've touched. I want to give my sister the last word here. John, I would be in really big trouble if I didn't say hello for Emily Owens to you. She oh, says great. You, she says you are a capital G, capital H, good human. I asked her what she meant. She gave me a lot of examples, which I won't go into, but she's really proud that she she brought you into Share Our Strength. You know, we all have people that we bring into the organization and you're one of hers and boy, is she proud of that. So very thankful for that as well, because meeting her in Austin was it had a huge change for me. So well, great. Thank thanks you. to both of you. Chef John Brand, Hotel Emma, the restaurant is Supper and just Thanks for what you're doing with first responders and others in the community and for the huge impact you've had with Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign and Cooking Matters. And Eric Cooper, really a, a lifetime and a career in food assistance to those who are most vulnerable for the past 15 years, president and CEO of the San Antonio Food Bank. Really grateful to have you both on Add Passion and Stir. Thank, Thank you, Billy. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
And on behalf of the entire team at Share Our Strength and the No Cut Hungry campaign, thanks to our listeners. You can go to adpassionandstir.com and listen to other episodes. You can rate us and rank us and subscribe and share this with your friends. Special thanks to our producer, Paul Woodall at District Productive that has made this podcast happen from the very first day. And our communications team and Kelly Griffin and all of those at Share Our Strength who are part of this work on behalf of my sister, Debbie, and myself. Thanks so much for listening to Ad Passion and Stir. Sure.